Hey, it's Kathy with Rocky Retirement. And as promised, today's Friday, and so you'll be getting to listen to Henry Shapiro's Retired Excited. I know you're just going to love this as much as I do. And don't forget, you can still listen to Rock Your Retirement, where I'm the host, and those shows are released on Mondays. Welcome to the Retired Excited Podcast. Retired Excited, the show where we give retired and want-to-be-retired folk a look at how great retired life can be. Here we talk to men and women who are happily retired and loving their life. We explore the techniques, activities, beliefs, and excitement of these happy retirees and examine how every Tom, Dick, and Mary can benefit from their experience. Together, we will delve into what retired happiness really looks like and how anyone can achieve it. Here is your host, Henry Shapiro. Hey folks, Henry here, Retired Excited, the show providing inspiration for people who are nearly retired, newly retired, or say they're never going to retire. If you're nearing retirement and fearful of what lies ahead, you don't need to be. If you're already retired and wondering how to fill your days, then this show is exactly for you. Here we talk to retired people doing things that make them happy. Things from stamp collecting to cruising, from dancing to touring the world on a motorbike. There's an exciting stage of life to be enjoyed after full-time work and it's got nothing to do with your financial situation or social position. We talk to everyday retired people who are living the life they want and we talk to a few professionals to get expert advice. And I chip in with some of my own experiences. Welcome, folks, to episode number 27 of Retired Excited. And today it is exciting. I've got a fabulous woman for you to meet. Everybody loves pets. Everyone loves kittens and puppies, some more so than others. And today's guest, Judith French, breeds dogs. In her time, she's bred all sorts of dogs and cats. But today what I'm going to talk to her about is her current love, in fact, this breed of dog was picked out really by her husband, John, because he saw one in the street and loved it. And the breed are Papillons. Papillon in French is butterfly. And if you're looking at the website, you'll see that these are little dogs and they have ears which stick out with long furry tassels on them and they look like a butterfly. They're beautiful little dogs. Now, Judith has been a breeder of show dogs and in her time has won lots of uh, accolades for the dogs that she has bred and also the cats that she's bred. In fact, she bred Kimona Miss Muffet, which was a grand champion. That was a Seal Point Siamese cat. The stud name with which Judith has is Watermill. And later on, I am going to direct you to a website where you can get all her information and have a look at some of her dogs and beautiful little dogs they are. Now, what are we going to hear about in this episode? We're going to hear about the the show ring, the sort of people who are showing dogs, and then the other side, the obedience and performance dogs and the sort of people who are involved in that enterprise as well. Judith has some pretty scathing things to say about show people. She used to show a lot, but has moved away from that more into obedience work now because really, I think, because of the people who are involved. And there's lots of different activities, lots of different aspects of obedience work. 
She goes through those and you're going to be really amazed. You would consider that most of those things were more appropriate for large dogs, large breeds, shepherds or that sort of dog. But no, even the little dogs can do them and her dogs have done really well. We're going to talk about that. One of the other things that we talk about are puppy farms. And as you can imagine, she's very scathing about puppy farmers and explains what puppy farms are and how they fit into the whole doggy world. She sees them really as being a blight on the scene. And here in Victoria, Australia, there are moves afoot to shut down puppy farms for their cruelty as far as breeding goes, and also because of the cruelty that is shown to the dogs when they are pups, when they're small. You're going to find that Judith speaks very lovingly about her animals. Everybody loves their pets, and Judith is one of those. She really, really loves her pets, but she loves them as dogs and cats. She doesn't, and this is a hard word to say, she doesn't anthropomorphize them. She doesn't consider them fur people. She loves them for the breed that they are. And her attitude is, let a dog be a dog. If it wants to dig in the garden, it can dig in the garden. It's not going to be wearing a little suit or a tutu. It doesn't go for all that sort of stuff. And I, I really admire her for that because there's lots of people in the doggy world get carried away and consider them, as I said, as fur people. They might be part of the family, they might be friends, they might be your very best friends, but they are a dog or a cat. That's my opinion anyhow. So listen to what Judith has to say. It's very interesting stuff. And I start out because I knew that she had moved house. I wasn't quite certain when. So I asked her how long she'd been living where she is now. What were you doing before you retired? Well, nursing has already always been my profession. To just put it in context, I started out as a nurse at the Royal Adelaide Hospital Mm -hmm. and did the whole nursing course, which was three years at that particular stage, doing the old apprenticeship system. And we got the magnificent sum of £5 a week. Keep came out of that, you know, like housekeeping, etc. Out of five pounds. Out of five pounds. <laughs> so we were left... For all you youngsters, that's $10. Exactly. <laughs> and I did... It was called... Um, what do they call it? More, more or an less. Intern, sorry. Yeah, an intern. And then lo and behold, after that, I had met John and was going out with him and he did the big proposal. So we got engaged and married. And that was your first mistake. <laughs> that was well, that was a big mistake, no. probably. How long have you been married? It'll be fifty-four years. <gasps> so anyway, that was the end of my nursing career because then we begat three beautiful children. So anyway, we shift to Perth, right? right? And I was hell-bent on going to university and doing some sort of degree or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at economics and uh, or just, just an ordinary arts degree. But to get me into my mode, I sort of went, went back and did English, ancient history and biology. So anyway, I graduated from that. Interestingly, um, they put the first nursing course in... Uh, a proper sort of tertiary institution at that stage. So I was one of the first students that ever did that. So you've had training through the apprenticeship system. Exactly. And through the uni- mm. university system. Mm. Do you think the university trained nurses, I can't say they are they better, are they better equipped, let's put it that way, than the Absol- old style absolutely, nurses? Absolutely, because we did... Uh, we shared a lot of workshop, uh, workshops and lectures with 
pharmacy students, uh, medical technology students. We did post-mortems, etc., with the medical students. So you had that connection right from the start at, at that basic student level. When did you give up full-time work? Oh, that was about two years ago. As you approached giving up full-time work, were you looking forward to not having to work every day? Yes, absolutely. And what was it about it that you were looking forward to? Why, because why? I had other things to do, playing with my dogs. So I was going to ask you, what did you intend to do when you retired? And the answer was, play with your dogs. Mm. Anything else? Well, just having time, I suppose, to yes. sort of work in the garden and read. Um, I suppose just happily get out of time constraints. Before you retired, were you feeling stressed about having to put in so much time? I'm just trying to get back to the words you said, time constraints. Was that a worry to you at that stage? Well, it always was, yeah. I had to get up in the morning and I had to, <laughs> had to do all the obligatory things. And I was always travelling because um, since, since moving to this neck of the woods from the city, it involved a lot of driving. And at one stage, I used to clock up about 1,500 kilometres a week. I was seeing clients that were all under protective services, so mm -hmm. there was a lot of um, stressors involved in visiting these families. They were on the brink of having their children removed. And at the end of it, I'd have to write a report for court. So a lot of responsibility. A lot yeah, of, yeah, of course. So that's what you were doing before. You were looking forward to getting rid of some of those things. Did things work out as you hoped they were going to work out? Were you able to do more gardening and were you able to read more? Or did it really happen like that? No, not? of course not. Because, yeah, see, I was working right up until we actually shifted. So the, the shift itself was a bit of a relief because, you know, I just said to everybody I wasn't going to be available. What I really wanted to talk to you about was what you've been doing. You were doing this before you retired for a long time, but more particularly after you retired, mm. and that you've been breeding cats initially yes. and then dogs. Yes. Just tell the listeners a little bit about the cats. The cats, um, well, I've, got my f I've always had cats and mm. I've sort of always brought up with dogs and just add another little snippet into the conversation. My dad was an avid shower of both pigeons and pigs, would you believe? He was a <laughs> pig breeder that showed his pigs <laughs> right. and his pigeons. So you are used to the show circuit. The yeah, so I had that. In, in my background, we also brought up with horses too, so we okay. had our ponies and we used to do the circuits at the different Aggie shows. What breed of cats did you have initially? I had um, my first cat actually was a, a Seal Point Siamese, but then I sort of ventured forth and I ended up with Burmese uh, Orientals and Devon Rex, which are the little little curly ET type pussy cats. <laughs> And, and you were you were breeding these and showing them, breeding them and showing them. Did you have any outstanding successes in the in Absolutely, that? Absolutely, yes. Tell all listeners what they were. <laughs> there was one particular pussy cat called that I called Miss Muffet, and I just <laughs> I'm thought, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Anyway, well, Miss Muffet, Muffet. Yes. She used to show herself. We'd put our, our cats, specific cats, in cages and everything. And she'd sort of rub against the, the cage and almost woo the judges into thinking, you know, I am just so beautiful, I'm so stunning. She just liked being, I don't know, before <laughs> an audience or something. There was a big prestigious show coming up, and it was an Australasian show. So anyway, Mother ran all excited to say that this cat had, had 
got not only best Siamese cat, but the best cat in show. Best cat in show? Yes. And you moved from cats to dogs. And And there's one in the background. Yes. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) What caused you to swap from one to the other? At that stage, I just had um, actually the the what I always had as a child was miniature foxes, and my dad had border collies, and so I sort of grew up with both. Now they're actually called Tenterfield Terriers now, so they've got their own own sort of. So, which ones are called the Tenterfield Terriers? Terriers. This is the um, old-fashioned miniature foxes. Oh, okay. So anyway, I always had um, yeah, little miniature foxes. Growing up with dogs. Yeah, and um, so the first dog I actually bought that was a pedigree dog was a little Shih Tzu. And they're the sort that you sort of tie the hair up and put a little bow on and they've got all this full raping coat tickles the ground. That's what I bought, my first little Shih Tzu. I was actually showing her but didn't particularly, didn't, get a lot of joy from that. I found the show people particularly annoying. They didn't treat their dogs dogs well. And, of course, if they didn't win, they'd berate the dog. So then I moved from that more into obedience work. I, ha- I had the first... You had obedience work with a Shih Tzu. Yes. Now, right. I got a title in obedience work, and I think it was the only one in Australia with a little Shih Tzu jumping over <laughs> little hurdles and... Coming, you know, doing a recall, in other words, you walk away from your dog and you call your dog and it has to come to you mm-hmm. and sit and go around you and sit on the other side, walk without a lead and, yeah, all that sort of stuff. All that sort of stuff. I'm going to come back to training dogs in a second, but what are you breeding now? What brand of dog, what breed of dog have you got present? Now I'm focused on papillons. John found this papillon tucked under a woman's arm and just said, isn't that a pretty little dog? So I did a bit of research and, yeah, hence found out that they were papillons as well. I'm more a Border Collie German Shepherd kind of person. I'm sure you are. Most most guys are. (laughs) But I've got to say, the papillons are very pretty, very gorgeous looking dogs. They are. And yours are unbelievably well behaved. They are. So tell me about training. How do you train your dog? Well, I was a, a qualified trainer at the local uh, dog club, and I'm a life member of that club. So every Sunday morning I'd be down there training, helping people train their dogs. And how did you learn to train dogs? Probably by more mentorship sort of process. Uh, other trainers would give me tips and a lot okay. of observation, working on my own dogs, um, working with other people's dogs, and then you get different... Um, merits that you've passed sort of grade one, two, three. If someone wants to say to you, you know, they ring up and they're a long way away and they say, oh, I've got the pup and I need to train it and I want it to be able to come to me without fail, mm-hmm. uh, just to be able to keep it safe and mm-hmm. so on, How, what would you advise them? Well, most vets actually run uh, puppy classes mm-hmm. and I know you have to pay, you know, pay money. Either that or you'll, you find your local club and they usually have weekend training and I think it's essential that you socialize your dogs not I mean you can do a certain amount at home and I used to do a lot put a lot of work uh, into my dogs at home they need that aspect of socialization with people and big dogs little dogs and all sorts of dogs without sort of running rampant the other thing I used to do with my dogs is not not just obedience work I used to do flyball 
What is that? What is that? No, I don't know what it is. That's an actual team sport, and you'll you'll find that at the different royal shows, and they have competitions, and they even use traffic lights stopping and starting the dogs. The dogs um, jump over, and there's two lots of dogs going at any particular time. They jump over. They've got four jumps to jump over, and then they collect a ball by by pushing on the on the board to collect the ball, and then you jump, 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 jump back to their owner and cross the, cross the finish line. So they get absolutely the yelp, yelping and yapping, and they just get so bling and excited. I'm it amazed does. that it works. Oh, <laughs> I mean, they're dying to go because, um, yeah, that involves a lot of training, but it's yeah. it's real fun stuff, fun. And, yeah. and the dogs just love it. Now, I used to do that with Border Collies, but then when I sort of changed breeds and got got into papillons, all the people thought that that was fantastic because I then trained my papillons to do exactly the same. Because in the in your team, it is set at the lowest denominator. So if you've got a really small dog, it means the whole team that's that's the jump that they jump over. Whereas okay. the right, yeah, so where if you've got to... a team of big dogs, you know, like all sort of. I say shepherds or yes. um, kelpies or something. It has to be set at their level. So yeah. apart from that, I used to do tracking. Now okay. these are tra- yeah, and this is literally tracking dogs. Now I've got three of my dogs have actually got their full titles, their championship in tracking. So that literally involves tracking people. You don't think about little fluffy dogs or papillons no, tracking, do you? But they've all got. The same sort of nose and the same same uh, millions of little cells in their nose. And they get a sock right at the start, and, and the track is usually a couple of kilometres. And at the end, wow. they find it, and it's staggered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the judge has actually laid it out and told, told the person where to go. And the dog follows the follow, scent. Follow that scent. And, and is the scent just in the air? They're not scraping it on the ground or doing anything? They're, no, they're, they're, all they're meant to do is just walk. So they've got a sock that's come off that person's foot. Yeah. So the dog is meant to sniff that and then follow where oh, this yeah. convoluted... For a couple of kilometres. Amazing. So there now, you go. You get little fluffy <laughs> things that do proper dog stuff. And the other thing, the other um, performance stuff I used to do was agility. And that's walking up big A-frames, walking along great big sort of elevated dog planks, getting on a seesaw and doing, weave, they're called weaving poles. And they, yes, they in and out, in and out. Yeah. Yeah, like you mentioned show people. You're not all that fond of show people. No. What, what sort of, and there's probably a difference between people who show and then people who do tracking and then people. Mm, uh, absolutely. T- t- tell me something a little bit about the people who are involved well, in the doggy world. Yeah, the people in performance events, sort of like tracking and flyball and all the rest, there's a camaraderie sort of aspect because the, it is a dog that fails it. You know, that particular test or particular event or goes AWOL and mm. yeah, sort of a particular, yeah. Lost a scent or whatever, mm. yes. Mm-hmm. So therefore there's not this intense sort of pressure um, that you would get at the show ring because everybody sort of goes there thinking that their dog is the epitome of what that breed should be and they get miffed if, if they get beaten. Have, the, have you got any stories about show people? 
there's a few old ones in some, some respects. Um, yeah, I can remember this dog. Now, what did he have? He had a bull terrier. And the dog actually had a heart problem. And he, he was... Because with some breeds, you've got to actually run around the ring. So he was running this dog around the ring. took no notice of the fact the dog was sort of trying to sort of, you know, pull away and didn't want to sort of go. And anyway, he got his award and he was walking the dog out and the dog just just literally flopped over. Killed over. Killed over and died. And do you know what this bloke did? Went and put, found a big wheelie and put the dog in the wheelie bin. That's, that's pretty harsh. So to some show people, they are just commodities. They will. There's one particular dog that has literally been all over the world. He was bred here in Australia, but he got sent to Germany, he went to Austria, he went to the UK, and then he went to America. And all at what he went to different homes. It was all sort of organised from here in Australia. And it was only to get all these titles from all these different countries. So there's this dog's name at the end, but it's all these incredible titles, you know, as um, German. Was he a stud dog? Was he? He was, was a stud dog. He was working as he went around? To me, that's, that's being a commodity. And that's the other thing too, because the judging can become quite thwarted or warped in that if another judge that's sort of done a lot of judging outside of Australia and then comes back, especially with an important dog, it almost seems to be automatic that that person will get the awards. So Which there's a bit, of, a bit of funny business goes on oh, in the judging? right. It's not, not, not straight down the line at all. So that can get a, a bit irritating. Irritating, yes. Well, to say the least. I mean, but other people get... Quite... I imagine the more ribbons you've got, the more you can charge for your pups. No, probably. If you've got a Royal Melbourne Show winner, that's a big deal for your yeah, stud. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, well, they do. They, have, they sort of hang on their awards and, um, you know, if you can get your dog titled with a championship... Yeah. With you know the word champion in front of it, me yeah. personally, I just think it's something to aim for. But and and again, um, talking about the show breeders too, I think a lot of them are not much better than puppy farm farmers. Yeah, because there are strict rules and regulations. I mean, every pup, if you if you are a member of Vic Dogs, you both you the dam and the sire all uh, you know have to be registered with a proper pedigree. And all your puppies that you have from the subsequent mating have to be registered as a litter. And then when they go to the individual family homes, I've got to, they then register them. So you're saying it's a bit like puppy farms. Is, is it the case that you produce as many puppies um, within reason as you yeah. can, mm-hmm. hoping that one of them will be perfect? Yeah, well, I mean, that that's probably the big incentive. People do it because, you know, you can sell these puppies for, for big biggies. Let's not worry about papillons, but let, let's go back into Shih Tzus, for instance. Yeah. What would a commercial Shih Tzu, so not an award winner or even yeah. a registered one, what would they sell for you? Any idea? Probably about two, $3,000 a puppy. There's a little blank in this tape because I'm just swallowing. And, and if it's an award winner? Yeah, probably about four. They'd probably put another... Another one or two grand yeah. on it. So you can see why they breed lots of pups if they of can. Of course. Yeah. But unfortunately, the you know the smaller breeds only they only have ever you know one or two or three yeah pups in a litter. 
Mm. Whereas if you have something like a German Shepherd, you like to have 10 puppies. Okay. Now, they charge that, that sort of money for their puppies. Now, actually, I was looking at, there, there's a particular, not really a program, a thing called Dogs Online. Mm-hmm. So you can, on the internet, so I've got my own little profile sort of written up on that. Mm-hmm. But a lot, of, you can check out all the registered breeders. You can check out what puppies are for sale. And yes. you'll get photographs of puppies and whatever. If people are looking for you, they go into Dogs Online. Yeah. And do they put your name in? How do they find you? Oh, I've got my name and address and okay. phone number and everything there. Yeah. And if I want to sell any puppies, I'll put a photograph. But it means I can put my dogs on that and it's one way of selling my puppies. It means that I can vet the people. I'm going to get a little bit away from uh, what dogs. we've been talking about. Let's talk about the commercial side of breeding. And you've said that there sometimes thousands of dollars for dogs. There's been a fair amount of drama about puppy farms. Can you explain to listeners what a puppy farm is and what your attitude to that is? Well, see, there you go. I mean, I, I know a couple of people that I would classify as pa- puppy farmers, and yet they're under the auspices of Victorian, you know, big dogs. They've usually got, you know, up to a hundred or more breeding bitches. The dogs that they have are there, you know, just for service these dogs. I mean, if you're a member of Vic Dogs, you're meant to not. They're only allowed to sort of a bitch is only meant to have six. Litters in, in their lifetime, or pup, puppy farmers, they just breed indiscriminately. So um, they're just getting over one litter of puppies and then they mate. So after again. a period, yeah. yes, and then they'll mate up again. So there's just absolutely no respite. So there's no there's... proper care for the puppies at all. And then from once they're born, they live in appalling conditions, some of them. And so that's a commercial farmer, let's say, is farming pups. Hmm. And how do they sell those puppies? Because they're producing lots of puppies. Exactly. And where they go is mainly pet shops. There's a move at the moment in in Melbourne, anyhow, or Victoria, to to ban the sale of pups in in pet shops. And if you ask pet shop owners where they source their puppies, they'll always say, you know, they get them from from, New South Wales or up north somewhere, but they won't ever say where exactly they get them. Um, If you ask ask them to show you any papers or paperwork about registration, there's nothing like that. And yet they charge, you know, around about $2,000, two to two and a half to three sometimes. For what sort of dog? Just any sort of dog that's in the in the happens to be in the window. The other thing there has been a big emphasis on yeah. just recently, and that goes along with puppy farming, is rescue dogs. Yes. Would you like to say anything about rescue dogs? Well, I think the rescue dogs that come from um, you know places like Lord Smith and um, yeah, RSPCA. The R- yeah, the RSPCA. They they do an absolute fantastic job. And they actually sell their dogs now, and cats, would you believe? They don't just let them let them go off to any Joe Blow, and they vet the, the people very carefully. Those dog, dogs or cats are properly immunised, had their proper sort of health checks, and they also che- they're checked temperament-wise too. I have a relative who breeds Leonbergers, which are monster dogs. Yes. And she checks the people who she is selling to unbelievably. She goes to their house. Yes. She just will not sell to, to anybody. She, it's like applying for a job almost, you know, to be allowed to buy one of her dogs. 
Is that common? I think most really responsible breeders, yeah, I like to think that they do exactly exactly that. And that the prospective buyer has done their homework on the particular breed, you know, the attributes of it and the mm-hmm. size that it's going to grow because all puppies look so cute. I'm just going to ask you two more questions and then we'll finish up. What do you get out of breeding? Why do you do this? Well, a lot of baby things. I'm... I'm uh, <laughs> I mean, that's that thing. In my nursing, and that, that's why I sort of sidelined. I did midwifery and then I did maternal and child health and then worked um, in intensive care at the Royal Children's Hospital and prior to, prior to that, uh, the Memorial Hospital in Perth. Are you so saying there's an emotional, an emotional connection? I just like little th- small things and I don't know. I used to even if, like, if I say nurturing, what do you say? Yes, nurturing. Yes, that that, that would probably be me. I try and nurture John, for instance. <laughs> good <laughs> luck. Yeah, good luck. Exactly. See, that's the other thing with my my dogs too, and my cats. Mm-hmm. I am a big believer in you know an appropriate diet, and you know the more natural and that the better. I, and I've you know read books by vets that have stepped outside the industry and they mm. are disbelievers of all this tin food and when you when you were a child Henry you mm. didn't see great big vast no. packets of stuff to uh, it's become a huge enterprise industry, now yeah. and here's my last question for you well, it might be the second last question not to do with dogs and cats and that but people are coming up to retirement what advice would you give them i think they should have something in mind and I mean I was going to do all sorts of things I was going to, I mean I used to do a lot of oil painting and sketching and watercolours and whatever and I always envisaged you know having my big studio and all the rest of it but I think you need to keep active and fit watch your diet and not get coming you know to the last third of your life let's say why do you need to keep active and fit because of your actual health I mean you've got to look after your body just like you service your car and sort of top it up with oil and juice and petrol and stuff. Um, you know, I think you've, you've got to sort of look after yourself from that, that point of view. And I think you need some sort of form of stimulus mentally. You should be sort of keeping up to date with current affairs and, um, and through reading, enjoying the company of people. Talking to people. That was my last question. People? That was the last, last question that I... What was? Well, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the things you've talk, we've talked about, whether it be showing or agility or all those, involves being with other people, as well as with dogs. Is the people aspect something that you enjoy? Very much. The only problem with that, if, if I'm selling puppies, yeah, um, for instance... I will get a lot of people that I just wouldn't sell to and they are not my sort of person that I would ever, you know, entrust them with any of my puppies. But the ones I do sort of end up eventually selling a puppy to, they always remain lifelong friends. It is quite incredible. So there's some sort of connection or bond there and they will ring up and they'll report back about their puppy and... Most of them are into sort of performance stuff or they, they are the type of people that take their dogs walking around the block and interact with other dogs. 
they'll come back for a second puppy to keep that first puppy company. <laughs> and so it's an ongoing sort of saga. So you have that common denominator that you can sort of talk dog talk to. Judith, can I thank you very much. You obviously love your dogs. I do. Love the whole idea of, uh, of breeding and, mm. and so on and so on. So thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I hope our listeners have gained something out of this. I'll put dogs.com. What, do- oh, dogs Online. Dogs yeah. Online. I'll put it in the show notes so yes. people can look it up. Thanks mm. very much. It'll be good. Okay. <laughs> well, as they say, who would have thunk it? A little dog like a Papillon competing in a team with Border Collies and, and Shepherds and doing really well. The other dog owners love it when Judith comes to those competitions because, as she said, the jumps and other equipment get set to the size of the smallest dog. So and that'd be hers. So they like being on a team with her and with her papillons. I would never have considered that a papillon could be involved in tracking. That's amazing to me. But she says they do really well and, uh, and they are accredited for tracking. As I said at the outset, it's really obvious that Judith loves her dogs. It shines through in everything that she says and everything that she does for that matter. I hope you do have a look at the website that she mentioned. It was dogsonline.com.au and dogs are spelt D-O-G-Z online, O-N-L-I-N-E dot com dot A-U. And in the show notes, I have put a link to her specific page, to her profile on dogsonline.com.au. So you'll be able to see some of the other dogs that she owns and has bred and get all her details if you want to contact her. I hope you've enjoyed this. It's a world which I'm not really involved in myself and it all comes as a surprise to me, particularly what little dogs can do. I was amazed at all that. And along with a lot of the other people who I have interviewed, in the end, it was about the dog and it was about the activity, but it was also about the camaraderie with other people who are involved in the hobby or in the enterprise that she is. It all comes down to community with a lot of these things, doesn't it? It's something we should take note of. It's so important, particularly as you get older, not to be holed up sitting on the couch uh, in your underwear, eating chocolates and watching daytime television. It's important to be out and about with friends, with people, and uh, being part of a broader community. Anyhow, that is it for today. As always, if you want to contact me, henry at retiredexcited.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Keep well, keep happy. Bye. I like that. I get that for sure. Um, Ian Robert, that's terrific. That like was that. interesting. What a good idea. Oh, wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. 
These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August, actually August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.